0: to the pursuit of growth show where we hold candid conversations with fascinating individuals from all walks of life we learn about their passions and successes their failures their lessons learned and how they apply personal growth to their lives we end all of our conversations with key takeaways that can we can that we can all implement to be a, to better ourselves and i'm going to stop right there and start over <laughs> that's the, <laughs> oh, first, that's time the ever. first
1: time ever we've ready to do that
0: first time ever <laughs> All right, so let me... Let me you're you're making
1: Sammy nervous. Yeah. Oh, please, don't get nervous on my part. <laughs> all
0: right, I'll do it one more time. And we'll I actually, you, I might we'll do... catch it on again. Yep. You ready? Let's do it.
1: In five, four,
0: three. Welcome to the Pursuit of Growth show, where we hold candid conversations with fascinating individuals from all walks of life. We learn about their passions, their successes and failures, their lessons learned, and how they apply personal growth to their lives. We end all of our conversations with key takeaways that we can all implement to better ourselves and the lives of those around us. As always, I'm joined by my good buddy, my co-host, my pal, Greg Brinkley. Greg, how are you doing this evening?
1: And Sammy, I'm good. And and like we talked about last night as we were preparing for this show, I am extremely excited to welcome our guest, Cletus Judge, to the Pursuit of Growth Show. Cletus, how are you doing, sir? Doing great, thank y'all for having me tonight. Absolutely, well Cletus Judge, the reason why I'm so excited, um, you're gonna hear a little bit about him in his introduction that I'm gonna read. Cletus is originally from a small town just south of Mobile, Alabama called Stockton. He was raised by his grandparents, his grandfather worked as a farmer and his grandmother was a domestic worker for a family. They instilled in him a work ethic and an obligation to seek higher education which he took and graduated from the University of South Alabama in 1987 with a degree in political science and a minor in military science. He was commissioned a second Lieutenant through the ROTC program while in college. And he also holds an MBA from the University of Dallas he achieved in 2001. Cletus joined the Dallas police department in September of 1987 and retired in May of 2018. He worked with several units within the department, including an instructor at the police academy for nine years. He was a robbery detective for two years, sergeant in capers and his last five years, he served as a sergeant in homicide. Cletus is currently an administrator at Dallas College over the police academy. He has been married to his wife, Marietta Judge, for 26 years, has two adult sons and an eight year old grandson. His family are members of St. Luke Community Church here in Dallas. Cletus, again, welcome to the show. How are you doing this afternoon?
2: I'm doing great, thank you. Once again, thank you all for having me. I'm excited to be with you all today. And I'm just wait, excited about your questions and I don't mind talking about myself,
1: okay? Very good. We're gonna jump in and throw you a fastball, Cletus. We're coming strong with questions right now. Okay. So as a retired police officer and homicide detective, We'd love to know what is your favorite police or
2: detective movie that you've seen, and tell us why. Okay, um, my favorite movie um, is called The Bone Collector, and it was Den- it's one of Denzel Washington's first first movie. And if you notice anything, Denzel's played about thirteen roles as a police officer in thirteen different movies. And The Bone Collector, he was actually uh, wheelchair was in a wheelchair. Actually, he was uh, in a bed and he was still serving as a detective, and uh, I can't remember the um, actress that played with him, um, but he was solving crimes um, from the bed and actually yeah. you know, using his detective and using all his insights to solve these uh, murder, and they actually caught the guy, and the guy actually turned on him, and he actually fought the guy off because the guy backtracked and came to his house. That's one of my favorite movies, The Bone Collector, and I'm telling you, my, and I know you didn't ask, but my favorite TV show, mm-hmm. and I think it's probably one of the most realistic TV shows, is gonna be uh, Law and Order, the SUV. Uh, that's that's, one, that's my favorite show, police show, and it's very realistic, very realistic. And I, I think that's probably the closest thing that you'll see to real police work. That's what a- do you notice when you watch TV
1: shows um, or you see movies? Um, what are some of the things that stick out to you as being completely
2: unrealistic? Okay, there's one show I won't call the name, but one of the things is like they, they get someone's driver's license and they actually next thing you know they know where the person is just by looking at their driver's license and that's 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 not realistic and you know um, actually always being Johnny on the spot and actually you know hey walking down the street there's the suspect right there that doesn't <laughs> happen and, and that's you know that's one of the things that I look at from the standpoint of being realistic, how things just haphazardly happen. And, you know, but I'll tell you, um, some of those TV shows are just not, you know, things just don't happen like that. And a lot of times, a lot of people look at those and they think that, hey, the police can do that. The police can do that. But I will tell you one thing that does help police more than anything is this thing right here, Mm -hmm. the cell phone. Have have y'all ever left home without this? The only only, only
0: by mistake, right? And if, yeah. you
2: do, if you do, don't you turn around and go get
0: it? Yes
2: 100% sir. of the time. Okay. Guess what? Murders, thieves, and robbers do the same thing. They take this phone with them everywhere they go. And this has been one of the biggest and the best tools that police officers, detectives, have to use right now is these cell phones. And it works for police officers.
0: You know, that's, a, that's fascinating. And I'm glad you segued into the Law & Order SVU because my wife is a huge fan. I think she's been watching it as long as I've known her. And we've been married 10 years and we dated for six years before that. So um, I, I know that, that show very well. And there's a couple of different shows that we watched in our past. Uh, First 48 was a big one, big detective yes. show. And, and I, I found that one fascinating because it really showed you kind of that day-to-day ins and outs of the uh, kind of the place where you know, obviously glamorized a little bit for TV as well, but what is it with police in pop culture? It's something that that we've talked about, Greg and I were trying to, to think about too, is also what is it about, it seems that women are really drawn to those types of shows. What What is it about that?
2: I think one of the things is that these shows, you know, when you look at, especially the ones that are on TV, they're always, you know, they always show the glamorous part of life. Very seldom do you see the, um, you know, the people, you know, you might see the ghetto stories, but, you know, a lot of these people are victims are living high life. They're living in nice surroundings. They're belong, members at country clubs and things like that. So I think that's one of the attractive things. And then with that comes, you know, uh, the expensive wardrobes, the fast cars, the, the beautiful homes. So I think that's one of the reasons why women are attracted to these shows, not for necessarily for the, um, the crime itself, but all the trappings that go around the whole show. And if you look at these shows, especially, you know, some of the SUVs, you got attorneys that are involved in the shows. You have, um you know, affluent people and you look at their surroundings and that's kind of attractive. I know that's what my wife likes, you know, we'll be looking at SUV and she goes, man, look at that coat that she has on. <laughs> I, go, I didn't notice the coat, baby, you know, but you know, I noticed that about my wife, she especially is very in tune to the, um, what the women are wearing, the jewelry that they have on, things like that. And and if their house is decorated beautifully that's one of the things that she keys in on. And I think that's probably why women are so attracted to these shows. You
1: know, Cletus, a show that ran for decades on Fox was a show called Cops. Mm -hmm. How realistic was that show? You know, it, it was advertised, it was set up as a reality TV type show. Did you watch that? And and just kind of what were your general thoughts when you
2: if and when you saw any of those episodes? I watched it a couple times, but I really think a lot of that was orchestrated, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of things were you know some of those people were actors and are paid to you know. And I just didn't think you know to me I'm just going to be honest. It made some of the police look like buffoons, and, mm-hmm. and I just I, I was really not a fan of that show because it really didn't do anything for us for police officers and it just it was very unrealistic some of it was funny some of the suspects were funny things that the cops did were so mm-hmm. I thought it was a more of a show of entertainment than rather you know giving real life you know stories about what's going on in the world today I, I really was not a fan of that show well a, a couple of rapid fire questions I have for you Cletus
1: sure one have you ever been in a car police chase yes I have
2: Okay, can can you can you elaborate on what what that looked like and how it ended? Okay, well, I tell you, it was one of the I was um, working in patrol and I was a um, field training officer, which is what we call the FTO, which you train rookies. And once we got behind a stolen vehicle and um, we I'm going to tell you about that. That was not funny. I'll tell you about the one that when I was a rookie and I was trapped, we were chasing this car. I had a trainer. And this guy was notorious for catching stolen cars. He just had a knack for it. He's retired now. And he would, um, you know, we'd be working deep nights when we, when deep nights is like 11 to 7 in the morning or 12 to 8. Hmm. And I'd be driving around, and this guy would be asleep. I mean, literally asleep. And he just wake up, he goes, and he kind of stutter. He goes, turn on that car right there, turn on that car. And I'd turn on the car, I'd turn, get behind the car. That car would start tra- traveling fast. And the next thing I know, he's put the license plate inside the computer, car comes back stolen. He, I mean, he actually he got a a, he got an award by the rotary club in the um in the Pleasant Grove area for catching so many cars. And they actually gave him a um on the weekends, he would get a Jaguar from a from a dealership for catching all these cars. And on that particular night, I chased this car and the driver lost control of this vehicle and ran into a house oh my gosh nobody was at home and so when they hit the house the driver bailed out left the car there and so um you know we towed the car off they didn't catch a guy and about two weeks later the owners of the house called me and said hey um we noticed that there's a police report made about our car and um you know a car was inside our house and What do you know about that? I said, well, it was a stolen car and they ran into your house. He goes, did y'all catch him? I go, no, we did not. And so they were kind of, you know, kind of mad about that. But uh, yeah, that car ended up in their house, stolen car. So that was when I was a rookie at that time. Jeez.
1: Okay, part two of my rapid questions. You know, kind of going into pop culture, we see some amazing fist fights and karate kicks and and cops and, and robbers falling over, rolling down hills. Have you ever had, like, an altercation where you and a suspect had to get after it in some kind of, like, physical
2: confrontation? Oh, yes. And, and one of the things that I, I'm telling you, man, um, like I, I told you in the bio, I actually worked at the police academy for nine years as an instructor. And what I taught was de- what we call defensive tactics. And I actually mm-hmm. taught cadets how to fight. And so I love, you know. There's nothing like practicing your craft in real life. So, you know, <laughs> I, I love to do stuff and I, you know, I'd be on the streets and just waiting for somebody to say, oh, I got something I want to show you or something I want to practice on. And if you ever remember, <laughs> you notice how you always see police officers doing these moonlighting, you know, what we call moonlighting, working at, I used to work at a lot of clubs. Right. And there is nothing like a drunk. That, you know, and they, they won't take no for answer. They won't take your directions. So I used to practice a lot of my stuff at the clubs. And one night we had this guy and um, he had, um, we told him to leave. And he came back to our car and he uh, said, why do I have to go? And I said, look, man, you're intoxicated. You need to leave. And then he cursed us and he slammed, he slammed the car door to the police car. So I got out of the car and I did what we call an angle kick. And the angle kick is when we kicked them right on their, um, on their, what we call a common peroneal, which is like the upper thigh area. And I kicked this guy so hard and um, <laughs> he fell down. And by the time we called police on duty to come pick him up, it took him about an hour to get there. And he was handcuffed. And when the police got there, he was still limping. He still couldn't walk. <laughs> uh, and I kicked him that hard. I, n- I never forget that, but I did put him in jail. And But he was just uh, uh, intoxicated, would not listen, and just, you know, when people are under the influence of alcohol and drugs, man, you're, their understanding is what we say is bad, bad understanding. You know? Yeah,
1: well, Cleo, is my third question, and then I'm going to turn it back over to Sammy, So, but I should also probably preference, you're sitting down, but when you yeah. stand up. You're you a big man, so I imagine a, a kick from you probably uh, definitely will leave a mark for several days, if not weeks or months. Well, I yeah. can say my, this my, one my... thing
0: real quick, is that I, that is my number one takeaway from this show already, is learn the angle kick. Right. I'm, I'm going to research that.
1: <laughs> yes. yeah. I love it. Well, my, my third question for you, uh, Cletus, is if they made a cop movie about you, and you got to pick your buddy, what actor would you pick to be like your buddy cop,
2: oh man, I'm telling you, um man, who would I pick I, I tell you if uh I would pick Denzel, man, yeah, I would pick Denzel Washington, man, he's so cool, you know oh, he's, yeah. just cool, he's just a cool guy man i, I like all his movies he's
0: actually my favorite actor um yeah. of all time I just there's yeah. he's just perfect, yeah, yeah. he's so, a cool guy. So in, in saying with that, you know, we've been having a lot of fun with these with these police and pop culture questions. So I had a burning question that I had to ask you. So uh, and, and pardon my French. Uh, I will I will use one one piece of, of uh, language that may get us censored. But in the movie Lethal Weapon, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Danny Glover's character was was you know, kind of the older the elder statesman, let's just say. Right. Yes. And, and his famous line was, I'm getting too old for this shit. Yeah. But yes. the thing about it was in that movie, he was 40 years old. And so yeah. I'm 40 years old. And so I was just wondering, did you ever have a moment when you realized that you were getting too old for this shit? <laughs>
2: oh, yes. Yes. And it was not, uh, it was when I was chasing somebody, you know, in the woods and I was just wore out, man. And I, and I, I don't, I probably actually said I'm getting too old for this, but just you know, actually chasing these, you know, some young kids through the woods. And I realized I go, if I don't catch these people quick, I mean, like in two or three minutes, it's I'm done. I was just done. And that's when I said I needed to go get on the desk somewhere. And that's when I, you know, went to the um, because I stayed at the police academy for about nine years. And I had a great time. I really enjoyed working at the police academy, training cadets. And um, actually, that was one of the things, one of the requirements was that you had to stay in good shape. And so I got to work out all the time. And, you know, I was uh, just a fitness guru then. And so I really enjoyed that. But like I said, I did. I do remember I was on the streets because one thing they would do is, um, <laughs> me and my partner, a friend of mine, uh, I guess it was about five or six years ago, the chief mandated that it didn't matter where you worked at. You could work in the office, but two weeks out of the year, you were going to work on the streets. Mm-hmm. And so one day, me, me and my partner, me and an old friend of mine, we, we chose to go work on the streets together. and We were in Oak Cliff, and we, um, it was early Sunday morning. We got a call about a um, female that was in, uh, high on drugs. And we were like, man, we can handle this. It was 7 o'clock in the morning. We, we just had our coffee and we go to this house and we go, we go here and the, the grandmother meets us at the door and she tells us my granddaughter, she's on something. She's on that whack, what she said, and she's high. And so um, she won't do what we ask her to do. So she came out the door and she was naked. I mean, completely naked <laughs> and sweating profusely. And so me and my partner, we were trying to gather her and put handcuffs and it was she was just slipping through our hands and <laughs> I was like, and so another uh, element showed up and two more officers and we finally got on the ground and I looked over at my friend and we were just sweating. We were like, we got to get out of here. And it was like, <laughs> we were talking about quitting. We were like, I'm so glad we don't have to do this, you know, stay in patrol. But i I'll never forget that. That girl wore us out. She's about 25 years old, but we could not get hands on it. She was just sweating and just flippering, you
3: know? Uh. That was funny.
1: Oh, man.
0: Those Gosh. are great stories. Yeah.
1: Well, well, Cletus, one of the things that Sammy and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, and we, we mentioned this when we introduced you, was, was growing up in South Alabama. Mm-hmm. And you grew up with your grandparents. Would you yes. like to hear a little bit about that experience and, and really what you learned from your grandparents, the the, the the disciplines, just the mindset, the things they taught you, and, and really what led you
2: into um, you know, your your college and the degree you chose. Okay, well, actually, like I said, my grandparents raised me, my mom was a single mother and we lived in, uh, I guess, um, I, I was born in Alabama, but my mom moved to Newark, New Jersey. And she. about, I was about eight or nine years old and we were having a really tough time in New Jersey. And we were, you know, living really bad. We lived in a brownstone, my, mo- my mom had a job, single mom, three kids and we were just living really bad we were struggling mm-hmm. and i never forget that my grandfather and my uncle showed up one day with a u-haul and they packed us up and they took us back to alabama and so that's how i you know met my grandparents and we lived with them and my grandfather was a hard working man very hard he worked for some farmers we didn't own we we had a little farm of our own where we grew fruits and vegetables for our own consumption and uh, we sold watermelons, but my grandfather worked for some more people and they, I mean, I never forget that he worked six days a week hmm. and and only on Saturdays, he worked from six, he would come, he worked in the evening, uh, going in the morning at 6 a.m. and he would come home about 6.30 at night and he worked like that every day to, I mean, he worked like that until he was about 75 years old and uh, I, I never forget that he, on Saturdays, he would only work a half a day. He would work from like six to 12. And that would be the day that we'd um, go to town and do our shopping for groceries and stuff like that. My grandmother worked for a family and she was a domestic. And I don't know if you ever seen the movie, the help you all remember that movie. I do remember that movie. Yes. And that movie reminds me of my grandmother and how she'd worked, but she worked for a very nice family. I'll never forget these people. They were very nice to us. And, um, she actually worked for the man and his wife. They had children, but the, the guy was an attorney. His wife died at an early age. And my grandmother practically raised that man's kids. Mm. I mean, she, she raised those kids. And so the, the mother, it was a um, daughter and a young man. And cause the, the, the lawyer didn't have anybody else. So, you know, my grandmother was their mother. And so she spent a lot of time with that family. And when he died and the young lady, she became an adult, and, you know, she went off to college, she came back, she married, and my grandmother continued to work for her, mm-hmm. and so these people were very nice to us, and I never forget the last thing was that they were gauzes, and um, even, like, when my grandmother, I never forget this, when my grandmother passed, and we were at the funeral, I had a lot of cousins come, and they go, um, who are all these white people, and, mm-hmm. and we at the funeral, and they go, I go, that's grandma, that's grandma's other family, mm-hmm. and yeah, they- and, wow. and, and, and they literally were her other family because she raised them. And, um, you know, we developed a, re- a very good relationship with them and, um, you know, very nice people. And they treated my grandmother like, you know, they, they really loved her and they treated her very nice. But my grandparents were really big on education and we really, I spent a lot of time at church, on you know, every Sunday we were at church and everything, but they really, you know, install instilled to in me that hey if you want to change your surroundings if you want to change the way you live you're going to have to get an education so I was pretty smart in high school and actually I started college when I was 17 I graduated I, I was still in high school and um, I enrolled in college and uh, at a junior college before I graduated and I left there and I went to the University of South Alabama and I you know stayed there and um I was just—I really didn't know. I I actually enrolled uh, when I started. I was a biology major, and I really, you know, I really enjoyed biology and chemistry. And uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I like, you know, the sciences. But I could not pass differential equations, and I keep—I kept (laughs) struggling. I took that class three times and couldn't pass. And so I went over to my um, uh, advisor and said, "Hey, man, uh, I see some people that came here with me that are gone." And you know, they started college for me. So I said, I need to get out of here. So I changed my major to political science and um I, you know, graduated. Also, uh, when I was a um junior, I enrolled in ROTC. And I'm gonna tell you why I got in ROTC because it was extra money. And they said if okay. you know, for if you enrolled in ROTC, you get a hundred dollar stipend from the government. And I was also, they, they had this thing they called the SMP program where you could be in the reserves at the same time and I would be an officer. So I got money from there. And that's the only reason why I got it in the RTC. And then I didn't realize uh, when, I, when I graduated, uh, they said, hey, um, you got to serve some time in the reserves. You got to do six years in the reserves uh, when you graduate from college. So I ended up doing 16 years in the reserves. Okay. Wow. And so um, I, uh, I did not retire, I got 20 years. I uh, did not, re- I, I got 16 years, but I didn't retire. But that's how I got in the military. And one of the things that, um, just to go back a little bit, but um, we were, uh, I met my father when I was a senior in college. I met my dad. Uh, And so, um, and I really didn't know the story about behind my um, my mother and my father. And I, I found it out later. And my father was not a bad guy, but what happened was my father had got my mother pregnant at an early age. And my grandfather who was loved his daughter Practically ran my father off, mm-hmm. and just told him, said, "Hey, we don't need you. I don't need you to do anything." And my father joined the military, and and he made a career. My father actually retired 33 years in the army yeah. and um, command sergeant major. So when I graduated from college and before I came to the, when I was actually had been here on the police department for about two years, and the army called me and said, "Hey, you need to go active duty." So my father was actually stationed in Washington, D.C., working at the Pentagon. So I actually chose to go to um, Norfolk, Virginia, and I did my officer basic course in Newport News, Virginia. And so on the weekends, I would go and stay with my parents, my father and my stepmom. And so we really developed a really good relationship afterwards. But I really did not know the story behind that. And one thing, I, you know. I'm not sure, I'll just speak from the culture in the black community, there are a lot of secrets and people just Mm -hmm. keep quiet and and people don't talk about things and um, like I said, I didn't know the story behind my father and good man, but my grandfather ran I love my grandfather, but you know he he told my, my father, we don't need you, I don't need you to do anything, I'm gonna take care of both of them and you know my father tried to, you know, tried to spend time with me, but he ended up joining the army enlisted in the army and made a career out of it But after, uh, like I said, when I graduated from college, we developed a good relationship. And um, I just lost my father about three years ago. And they were living in the D.C. area. But like I said, he retired from the military. And my stepmom lives in Augusta, Georgia. We still talk and we visit all the time. But um, that was one of the biggest things that happened in my life. And like I said, you know, but I had a lot of love for my um, my grandfather my mother's brother and, and a cousin that actually helped rear me. Those They were the men in my lives that helped instill, you know, and one of the biggest things that I, you know, that I take away from that is that my grandfather taught me is that you take care of your family. You mm-hmm. provide for your family and you do what needs to be done to provide for your children and for your immediate family. And so I, I live that today, you know, and I, I tell my, you know, and my wife, she's always like, you know, you you work so hard. I say, I like working, but I, I know I think it's my obligation to provide for my family. And
1: Cletus, what was it like when your dad first connected with you? Do you remember how how that first conversation went, and how did you respond to that? You know, kind of seeing him for you know maybe the first time, and
2: yeah, since well, it's, 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 it's you're a small child. Yeah, well, the first the, when we first met, you know, it was kind of a contentious meeting, and um, you know, uh, he really didn't um, tell me the story. And uh, at first, and then, like uh, you know, I was like, I'll tell you, when I, when, I, when I first met him, I was 22, you know, 21, 22 years old in college. And I really like, you know, hey, man, uh, you've been absent. The only thing you can do for me is give me money. That's all I yeah. want, you know. And he told me, he said, well, you know, I, I like to, you know, I don't mind helping you and giving you stuff, but I, I would like to develop a relationship with you. And I said, it's a little late for that. And, um, but we, you know, we got past that with the help of my, my stepmom. Used a really really big part, and we, we we developed a very close relationship. And I mean, um, you know, I would go to D.C. all the time, stay, you know, visit them. And like I said, I chose Norfolk to go there just because they lived in um, in the D.C. area. It's only about a two and a half hour drive, and so um, we we developed a really good relationship, uh, always to to the end. I mean, to the very mm-hmm. end. And so um, I learned a lot from my dad, and one of, you know same that that work ethics my my grand my my dad he worked in the military for 33 years then once he retired he started working for a defense contractor and he did that for about 5 years and he just finally just stopped working and I, and I could, when I would go visit him he was still he was just bored i mean I, you know he worked all his life and that's all he knew And he had a hard time relaxing and just chilling, you know. And I I told him I would go down to, uh, we live right down the street from Andrews Air Force Base. And I was was playing golf down there. And I told my dad, I said, dad, I know you don't golf, but there's a lot of guys down there that you can just hang out with, you know, play dominoes, just talk. But, he, you know, he really had a hard time adjusting to not working. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It it sounds like you're kind of cut from that same cloth with the – from the genetic standpoint, uh, being that you know you you like to stay active and when, yes. and you said you don't you you enjoy work and I think that's something that the three of us shares. You know a lot of people see a lot of the work that we do and the, the extra effort that we put into to everything we do to to try and achieve you know you know a lot of of opportunities to help other people as well. But I think that that's something that is resounding in your answer is that you are one to put in that extra time, the energy and effort. And probably because you just like doing it.
2: Yes. Uh-huh. And, and I do I enjoy working. And like I said, when I retired, I was fifty-three from the Dallas Police Department. And I knew and I, I had some friends go, Hey, um, if you're gonna go back to work, why did you retire? Mm-hmm. And I said, Well, I wanted to retire from the police department because I knew that there was something else that I can do. And I wanted to explore, you know, I didn't like I always tell people I don't want on my tombstone police officer that's it you know he Mm -hmm. never did anything else but that's why when I um and actually my first when I first retired I actually worked for congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson for about six Mm -hmm. months I was an aide to her I worked for her for about six months and then a friend from my church called me about the job at um at Eastville College and it's it was really you know I'm I'm really, I'm tied to police training, but I'm really, you know, I'm not a police officer. I mean, I'm still a certified peace officer, but, um, you know, I don't wear a uniform or anything like that, but this still is training that I'm involved in, and I have, and I also got the opportunity to put some of my management skills that I am, when I was in graduate school, you know, some of those things I got an opportunity mm-hmm. to put in use, and so, you know, being an, you know, an administrator at the college level, and so I'm very happy with what I'm doing like right now, and I I tell people all the time, um, retirement is overrated. Mm -hmm. You know, people think, you know, people think, Oh, I just can't wait till I retire. I go, it's not what you think. It's not what you think. You know, know. you know, I'm, I'm
1: 43 and, and, and probably a long ways away from, you know, what most people would consider retirement. Whenever that gets brought up to me, Cletus, I tell people realistically, I don't see myself ever retiring. You know, Mm -hmm. I'll change what I'm doing. Yes, but I feel I feel like we all need to have purpose, and when you stop living with purpose, man, yeah. I feel like you stop living. And I yeah. think you see that with people that you know when they when they stop doing their job, in many cases, if that's all they had that was tied to like their purpose, you see them yes. fall down here really quickly. And so that's why I think yes. Sammy and I and you sound like you're coming from the same cloth. There's a lot of things that we like to be involved with. There's a lot of things that we find value in. And I think, you know, one of those major uh, emphasis for us is helping and serving other people. And I want to be doing that until the day that I die. Like I fully believe that that's gonna be my case and I feel like you're coming from the same clock.
2: Yes, and and I like, you know, one of the things I tell people all the time, you know, is um, I've worked with several nonprofits and um, when when I first, I don't know if you're all familiar with this, it was a a class that was put on for the, um, by the Center for Nonprofit Management, it's called Blueprint for Leadership, and it was a training course to get minorities active in the um, nonprofit arena, and it was um, started by uh, uh, the late Dr. Wright Lasseter, used to be the chancellor for DCCD, also a big proponent for the Center for Nonprofit Management, but he started this program to get minorities invested and engaged into the nonprofit arena and actually it was board training and once you graduated from the program they actually put you on on a board you know within the metroplex i was um i work with the youth village it's called youth village of dallas i worked with them for a while and one of the one of the big offsprings or all of that and what you hear all the time is cafe momentum mm-hmm. that, absolutely that guy chad hauser was on the board with me over at the youth village and he took uh, cafe momentum and just ran with it mm-hmm. but you know we we're working with young guys that were incarcerated for minor offenses and things like that so you know be, coming from the police department and working on the police department i could see that you know those things started early in people's lives getting in trouble so that's how i got hooked up with that with the um and then i went to another um, nonprofit called open doors foundation and that was started by uh, another guy and actually he was the um manager or he was the uh manager for um emmett smith and he started that foundation it's called open doors foundation working with the underserved community i, I worked with him for a couple years and then i became the president of the black police association and mm-hmm. we have an outreach of nonprofits, and that's how i actually met greg mm-hmm. back get the coffee with coffee with cops or and y'all had a program down there and we and that's mm-hmm. how i and got involved with the vulgar alcohol and, and like i tell people all the time and i'll you know you know, I've been blessed. I live a nice life and it's not, it's not of my own doing and and I've been blessed and, and and I have to pay this back and pay it forward and to help people that, that live and that people that are in need of help. And, you know, I always tell people the people that we can make the greatest impact on is young people. Mm -hmm. And it seems like it has to get younger and younger, but I want to do my part. And, um, you know, Muhammad Ali, I don't know if you ever saw this movie and, um, uh, Muhammad Ali was in this movie and, um, he was going around passing out Bibles champ, you know, this is a champ making all this money. And some guy, he picked up a guy and the guy said, look, I- I'll do it for you. And he goes, Muhammad likes, no, I got to do this. Cause I'm trying to get to heaven. <laughs> he says, I-, I want to do the work myself. And so we, we all are, you know, uh, obligated. And I know some people say good, you know, your good deeds will not get you into heaven, but, um, uh, that that won't keep me out i guarantee you <laughs> uh, I, wanna, I, wanna, Go ahead, Sammy.
0: I was gonna say i want to there's one part that i want to pick up on a little bit because i think it's going to tie into the next kind of lump of questions that we've been talking about but throughout your origin story you talked about the hard work you talked about the education so i want we can touch a little bit more about the education side but what was it about becoming a police officer? Like, did, did you have an aspiration? Was it something that was a calling? Like, how did you jump into that line of duty there when it's, when it's you know, we'll get into this a little bit later too, but when it seems to be like a, a tumultuous at times type of profession?
2: Well, well, you know, it's kind of funny that you asked that because when I was in college and when I was graduating, I had no idea in my mind of being a police officer, never thought about it. But I'm gonna tell you what happened when um, when I graduated. The army had sent me to um, Fort Riley, Kansas. I graduated. I had got my commission down there. I got pinned. My father actually flew down. He was on active duty. Flew down and actually pinned my bar on me when I got commissioned at Fort Riley, Kansas. So I went back to Alabama. I was sitting there and um, waiting to get to see if the military was going to give me active duty. And I don't know if you know about um, RTC, there's a small percentage of people that come from the colleges that go to active duty. The majority of the people that are on active duty has officers come from the military academies, West Point and all those places. So they give a larger portion goes to West Point, smaller portion goes. And you think about all the colleges all over the United States that have RTC programs. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to get active duty. So I was hoping and praying to get active duty because I didn't have anything else to do. And so um, I was sitting home in the summer, sitting at my grandparents' house, not doing anything, you know, and um, one of my friends, my fraternity brothers that I went to college with at, at Alabama, at South Alabama called me and said, hey man, what are you doing? I go, nothing. And he said, um, why don't you come out here? He was on the police department. He had been on a police officer about three years in Dallas. He says, why don't you come out here, man, and get on the police department. I go, man, I don't think I'll be no police. He goes, look, man, what are you doing? I said, nothing. And he said, well, why don't you come out here? He says, you can stay with me and my wife and until um, you get on your feet, and we'll take care of you. And so I got on a plane and um, did all my um, testing and everything, and they accepted me. And i never forget the first day I came to Dallas in 1987. I don't know if you all remember, but it was the hottest it had ever been in Texas. And I stepped off the plane. I was so excited about getting to Dallas. And I go, I'm, I'm going to, you know, get it. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go see this, going to see this. And I could actually see the heat vibrations. And when I stepped off the plane, it was so hot and I didn't go anywhere. I didn't go in and do anything, but I went through the testing and I got accepted. I was in uh, 1987 class 204. i never forget it. And it was about, I think, about 45 people in my class. And um, that's how I became a police officer. And then when I when I did that, I go, I'm only going to do this for five years. And then I'm going to do something else. Five years turned into 10, 10 turned into 20. And it finally hit 30 years and eight months. I finally retired. So uh, that's how I became a police officer. Never had a, um inkling about becoming a police officer. Never. Uh-huh so
0: or, or go ahead sammy no no go ahead I, I think i know where you're going go ahead
1: well i was just I, I was just i was thinking about 30 years as a police officer and i just find it so fascinating that you know if it wasn't for that friend that invited you to come down how your life could have been totally different and yes. it just makes me to think again how important relationships are in our lives and yes. how relationships are so critical to you know our, our, our processes throughout our lives As your journey through, um, you know, your 30 years in the police department, talk a little bit about some of the relationships that maybe mentored you from when you started all the way up until when you were leading uh, detectives in that
2: homicide division that you're in. Okay. And and like I said, I remember, uh, one of the, you know, I remember my days in the police academy and it was kind of funny that, you know, I guess these people are taught to, you know, not necessarily act mean, but, you know. They really weren't very nice to you, and um, one of the uh, ladies at the academy, and she was tough, very tough lady. I'll say her name, Gloria Spencer, and she was so tough, and she would look at you and, and just like you know, burn through you. And um, she was very, you know, just very about the business of policing. Then there's another guy named Hiram Burleson, who was also an instructor, um, very articulate man, very um, in charge just knew a lot about policing. And it was kind of funny that when they were, they were my instructors in the academy. And then once I did my time on the streets, and I think I did about maybe 10 years, I graduated in 87 and 1996, I was an instructor at the academy working with these two people mm-hmm. that were mean to me. And, and, and just, and I found out there was all a facade. They, yeah. they were, they were the nicest people. And, and come to, you know, fi- find out me and I, Gloria, me and Gloria go to the same church, and we're just, you know, we, we see each other at church all the time, and she she's a totally different person. And She's retired. She actually did 36 years on the police department before she retired, but, you know, those were some of the people that made the greatest impact on me as those initial trainers that I saw, and then, like, uh, you know, I had a lot of dealings with her, and another guy that was very articulate and um, was the president of the union, actually, was one of the guys that started the the um, Black Police Association. It was initially the Texas Peace Officer Association. It was Preston Gilstrap, and Preston was just uh, just a very intelligent, articulate man. And I never forget. Uh, we were at a meeting, and um, we were doing something. And Preston started his organization, and um, I just got out of grad school, and you know, I was I got my graduate degree in business, and um, we were talking about something, and Preston started talking. This guy he went to college, didn't graduate, and he started talking about something, and um, I, I forget the term that he used, but I, that term is not the, it's not a colloquialism that everybody uses. I mean, you had the, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley, that's what it was. He started talking about Sarbanes-Oxley, and I go, what you know about that? You know, I said I, I just got out of grad school, you know, i I should know about this, and I'm talking, but This guy is that smart. And we had gotten, I mean, Sarbanes-Oxley. That's not a term What is that?
0: I don't know either.
2: (laughs) I'm like, I don't uh, know what that is. Well, if y'all remember when Enron had the fall down, and Uh when Enron, you know, the, the guy in Enron had invested a lot of people's stock into the company itself into mm-hmm. Enron. And that's what, when Enron went down, all these people lost their 401ks and stuff like that. But Sarbanes-Oxley was two senators, our congressman that wrote up a, um, a law and a rule about, it's all something about almost like in, inside of trading. But uh, the mm-hmm. guy, one guy named was Oxley, and you know, but it's Sarbanes-Oxley, but this guy shouldn't have been talking about it because I was <laughs> so shocked that he, that he knew something about it. And just to show you how smart he is, we had got involved in some litigation and, and the police association and um, Preston had written a, um, a brief and um, we gave it to the attorneys and a, and a big, uh, a big firm. Um, it wasn't good when in, um Ron Keel. It's a Ron Keo and another guy, he actually ran for mayor, but it's a big firm that he ran. Mm-hmm. And um, he asked me, he goes, why did y'all go hire another lawyer? I go. What are you talking about? He goes. This document. It had to be an attorney that wrote this up. I go. No, Preston did that. The guy is that sharp. Wow. I mean, he's a journeyman, but he was one of the guys that made a very impact. Actually, he um, he was the president. He, you know, he started the police union, and then he um, he groomed me, and I actually ran the police union. The the uh, for for six years, I was the president of the police association, and uh, helped me a lot made a great impact on me, and like I said, a lot of police officers, and like I said, my friend, the guy that called me to come to Dallas, uh, John Charles, and John, we are all fraternity brothers, his brother is also a Dallas police officer, and so we all went to college, his brother was my platoon sergeant at the, uh, when I was in college at RTC, so we're very close, we all, you know, state, we live pretty close together now, but John Charles, John, uh, retired about two years ago, and um, we're very close, still see each other. We just had his mother's 87th birthday just two weeks ago. But there are a lot of people that made a lot of impact. I actually met my wife by being a police officer. And I'll tell you a short story. Yes. Um one of my good friends named uh, he was a. Uh, we were all, you know, police are greedy. I don't know if you know it, but we're greedy. When it comes yes. to these these moonlighting jobs, you know, so I was working I had a friend of mine turn me on to this job and he said, um he was coordinating the job. He says, hey, man, I got a job that you can coordinate. And if you coordinate, you know, you can make more money because you're doing more stuff. So he gave me this job. And my wife was working at this company. And um, they wanted police officers. So um, I uh, went down. There. I started working for there for a couple of months. And I saw this girl up in the office. And she was sharp. I mean, and one thing I, that really caught my attention, I tell the story the other day. One thing that really caught my attention is that I worked there probably three or four days a week. And I never saw this lady with the same clothes on twice. I've never, she had, I mean, just immaculate dressers, spiffy business suits, high heels, and just immaculate every day. Every I never saw her with the same clothes on. Never. And then I married her, and we she has every closet in this house. And I know <laughs> I now I understand why she never wears the same thing because. She has every closet in the house that we have now, yeah. and she still wears different clothes every day, and she never wears the same thing twice. <laughs> I, I, met, I met my wife as a police officer, and I'll I never forget um, the things that just, um, our first date was at the um, La Madeline at the Galleria. Okay. And then our second date was at the mine. You remember the mine right there off of um, Stimmons in Oakland, the, 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 they used to be up there on top of the hill. So
1: it's I know the hill you're talking about. I've heard yeah. of the place, but I've never been to that. I think yeah. that was already shut down by the time I got up
2: here. Yeah, it was called the mine. We ate there. I had I mean my mind, my memory is impeccable. I had beer battered shrimp that night. Wow. And, and so that was my, my when I, I met my wife by being a police officer. We've been married 26 years now. And um like I said, the police department has been, as they say, very, very good to me. Yes. Very good to me. Yeah. And so well, I met, met a lot of friends.
0: Yeah, you know, that I love that because I, I want to transition a little bit into your work as a police officer and then moving into detective. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and 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 the reason why I want to do that is because something you just mentioned that right there was the ability to remember your sharp mind. I think your your upbringing, your educational background, your your uh, understanding of learning, I think played a lot probably into that. Just from what I'm picking up in this conversation, so. We'd love to to just explore being a detective uh, with you because, you know, there's so much that's portrayed on TV, uh, uh-huh. but we'd love to just kind of dig into that per- line of profession just a little bit more.
2: Okay. Well, I left the police academy in 1996, and um, I went to... Um, I just wanted to get a change, you know, do something different. No, 96 to 2005. I worked at the police academy from 1996 to 2005. 2005... I, um, interviewed to be a detective in the robbery unit. And, um, I worked downtown and actually the, the robbery units are investigating units used to be at each station, but then they said they wanted to centralize it because, you know, if you had like a serial robber, you know, if they were robbing over here in Oak Cliff and, you know, so they, they brought everything downtown. So I stayed downtown and, um, as a robbery detective and i i I got trained by a guy and it was just ironic man the lord this works in mysterious ways the guy that trained me name was willie braggs and guess where he was from mobile that's right and so we bonded we bonded man this guy he was a he was a hell of a trainer and he knew how to man i saw him work people and just get you know his biggest thing was getting confessions mm-hmm. and he would, man, he would he would just do things and like I mean, not screaming and hollering shouting and he would just like, um, i never forget one time we had this guy, he was going around hitting, we call it hitting licks that's what they call robbing people or robbing business, he was hitting licks and we got him some kind of way and Willie sat there and we, you know I was in there in another room looking at him interview this guy and, and the guy was talking and he got. He made some type of emotional connection with this guy about family, and the guy was sitting here, and you can't see my hands, but the guy put his hands on the desk and really grabbed his hand, and you know he grabbed his hand and started touching it, and he looked at him in the face. And he goes, "You're not this kind of guy. You, your parents didn't raise you like that." And I saw a tear rolling down the guy's eye. The next thing you know, I robbed this place. I robbed this place. I did this and this. And the guy was just—I mean, I was just taken aback by how smooth he was, just to talk somebody into a confession. Because he has that—that that human touch. You know, it's kind of unheard of for a man to touch another man. And he grabbed his hand, and he—he he says, "Look, I, I know your parents didn't raise you like this." And Willie was smooth, man. He—he—that um, uh, you know, he trained me. I worked with him a lot. Had a great time with him. And I'll tell you about my first—my um, first robbery is, um, I'll never forget, it was, um there's a park right there off of East Grand, went right past the fire station, there's a park down there, and this uh, young couple, Hispanic couple were down there, and they were, um, it, was in the, it was in the daytime, it wasn't dark, and they were sitting out on top of the car, kissing and stuff, guy comes by there, pulls a gun out, and wow. um, pulls a gun on them, and makes them give them their money, and so he actually pulled them out of the car, and they they didn't speak english that good and so the guy said um, got him out of the car and said sit right here and he smacked his hand twice on the car and so um you know they couldn't give me a description um you know they, people looking at the barrel of a gun not going to give you a good description right but they told me that he put his hand on that car so i called ps which is physical evidence section they came down dusted the car got his hand print fingerprints on the car Immediately. Wow. this is my first caller i went into the computer i you know after they gave me the match with the fingerprints found the guy made a lineup Said, show me you know i showed him i gave him a five five person line six six people line up said hey pick the guy up. said right there is him then i went and got his name he'd been pawning stuff at the pawn shop got his address hunt him down man that was my first caller as a as a detective and i always remember because he said right here he made him get out of the car and he smacked the car so if it wasn't for dumb crooks we wouldn't catch (laughs) yeah
1: i I was going to ask you about that so you you mentioned earlier about how in terms of homicides you know this cell phone is one of the greatest tools now in terms of of your work in the robbery division what were some of the initial things when you would come onto a scene you would i mean obviously you're talking to you know the victim and you're trying to analyze what's going on but what are the things you're looking for what are the things you're asking to try to be able to figure out where you go in terms of your direction?
2: First thing for robberies of a business, we're looking for videos. And and you'd be surprised how many people have video cameras that are faking it. They they got the cameras not hooked up to nothing. And so a lot of businesses, that's one of the things that we look for in business. Video Mm -hmm. cameras, if not only, not cameras within the business itself, but exterior cameras, another business might have a a camera. So that was one of the big things that we looked for for business robberies and for witnesses. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, we'd see people that would, um, you know, that would be around and say, oh yeah, I saw the guy that left. I saw what kind of car he got in. So looking for uh, uh, video evidence and looking for witnesses is the biggest thing that we could utilize to actually catch people. And, you you know, we show lineups, but I don't know if you remember, but really the department had gotten away or, you know, I don't know if you remember with the innocent project when we found out how many people had been put in jail falsely by, Yes. you know, so we kind They're of, from lineups. Way, yeah, from bad yeah. lineups. So now it's a combination of everything. We need physical evidence and we, you know, a lineup and a confession and a witness. So we just don't solely lie rely on, um, witness or a, line, a person picking a person out of a lineup and so because a lot of people were falsely uh incarcerated behind bad lineups and so um one of the things that we always try to do is like you know we talk to everybody at the scene and we do a canvassing at the scene you know but the um, business robberies to me were a little bit easier because if you think about it these people really don't plan these things out you know very On TV, you know, they, they they have a meeting, they plan them out, but most guys, when they, you know, a lot of robberies are uh, crimes of opportunity, you know, and so very seldom do you have a robber that will plan something out. And so without planning, they're going to make mistakes. There, you know, some guy won't put the glove on, they go open the front door, and you know, most times... These people that commit these crimes, this ain't their first time at the park, you know. So they've been incarcerated before. We got their fingerprints. And so that physical evidence helps a lot. Physical evidence is a big deal with fingerprints, DNA, you know, and stuff like that. So those are some of the things that we look for as a detective. And like I say, always looking for witnesses to get you know, somebody, you know, to tell something.
1: When I was in college, my uh, my uh, townhome was robbed and uh-huh. when the detective was there it was interesting because two things that he did that i just blew me away was one he went through the cushions of our couch he uh-huh. said you'd be surprised how many times we found a wallet from someone sitting down and it falling out the next uh-huh. thing he did he went into our refrigerator and did fingerprints on some of the items that were in the refrigerator He said uh-huh. you'd be surprised how often they'll grab something and take a drink and yeah. put it back in
2: oh yeah mm-hmm. people and i've seen people eat at people's houses and just, you know, do all the kind of stuff, you know. And so, but working the business robberies and, you know, I, I did business robberies and individual robberies. And I so said, one thing about the individual robberies, you know, a lot of people, when they're looking down the barrel of a gun, they're not paying too much attention to They can't, they can tell you how many grooves are in the barrel, but they're not going to tell you what the person looked like that was holding the gun. And yeah. so I really liked the business robberies. And so that was one of, one of the um, things that I enjoyed the most. And robbery, you know, doing investigations, and, man, and, you know, we were a little bit, um, I'll tell you, like, all the guys in our unit, man, we, you know, I, I consider myself a spiffy dresser, and so that was another thing. You know, you work in, you if you're working in investigations, you got to be sharp, man. Yeah. You know, and, you know, nice clothes, and, and it's kind of funny. We'd come to work, and we have guys that they'd open up your lapel jacket. To see who made it, you know, like, mm. oh, is that Dolce and Gabbana? or You know, <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, I like, you know, it's not like the TV shows with the guy with the tweed jacket, with the old tweed jacket and the shoulder pads on it. You know, yeah. we were very, we were very conscious about our wear, you know, and starch shirts and you know, very nice clothing. It was, uh, you know, we had some detectives that didn't care that much about it, and uh, but some of them, you know, very conscious about the way they look.
0: That's interesting. So, so why is that? Like, what's why is that such a, a culture cuz you see that in the, in the tv shows as well like the yeah. sharp dresser for the most part right
2: yeah and i think i think tv has something to do with it but you know it just it is it, it gives an air of competence not only to you but to the people that you're dealing with when they see when you don't look like an excuse me when you don't look like a dirtbag you know when right. you when, you're, when somebody's come there dressed sharp tie color coordinated it, it gives you a, a little little confi- you know confidence and it makes the person that you're dealing with think Hey, this guy might know something. He might do this job pretty good. that's
0: a that, that's an excellent thing and something that I hadn't really thought about. But yeah, if you have somebody that just kind of shows up, you know yeah. dressed in a t-shirt and jeans says, "Hey, I want to help solve your case. Um, you might be yeah. looking for someone else with a jacket on at least, right? Yeah yeah,
2: yeah. we we would I mean, people are very conscious, and I, I never forget, man, I actually in my last couple of years, and people would always tease me because I actually had a lady that would come to my office and, um, you know, measure me for my shirt. I had my shirts custom made. And so and I, I actually turned her on to a couple of detectives and people go, what's this lady? She's not a police officer, but she'd come up there and fit everybody for their shirts and everything. Because I got my my arms are pretty long so I don't buy off the rack, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you get to actually pick out your material, you got to pick out what kind of collar you want. And, you know, then I was really in the I had always wear, you know, cufflinks and stuff, but we were really man, we had a couple of detectives that were using my lady and she was but she was really good, man. She made a lot of money off of us too, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it sounds like that's your wife rubbing off on you, by the way. Yeah,
2: yeah, I think so,
1: yeah.
3: <laughs> so I'm, I'm,
1: I'm curious, what, what led to you moving from the
2: robbery division to homicide? Okay, well, actually, it wasn't a direct move. Uh, I was in robberies as a, what we call a senior corporal, two-stripe. In order to be a detective, you have to have two stripes. And so um, in 2005, they, were, they said that they were going to downsize they were downsized in the robbery unit. And they said, uh, you know, I was the last one up there. So you know what that means? Last in, first out. Mm-hmm. And so they said, um, judge, uh, you're going to have to go back to patrol. And I said, well, if I'm going back to patrol, I'm going to be a sergeant. And so I never, I had been on, let's see. I'd been on a while, never took the sergeant exam. Cause I always had a quote, a good job. So, um, and a good job is concerned, you know, where you want to work is that's if you're where you want to be, that's a good job. So mm-hmm. I always had a good job. I was at the academy for a long time. And so I was at um, robbery Detective. So they told me, and said, well, you're going to have to leave and you're going to back to patrol. So I took the sergeant exam, passed it the first time. So when I went back to patrol, I was a sergeant supervisor. So I went back to patrol from 2007 to 2012 and I stayed there. And uh, five years in patrol, I was still, I was the president of the union back then. And so I went to um, 2012, there was an opening in um, CAPERS, Crimes Against Persons, a a sergeant for the uh, assault units. So I went over to the assaults, worked over there for a couple of years as an assault sergeant. And then I went to homicide. Mm -hmm. And that's my last five years at homicide. And I really... I mean, homicide is like the mecca. You know, mm. that's the ultimate investigative unit, and you know that that's where you want to be. You know, if you, you know, you want, you know, like I say they, I think they almost stopped First Forty Eight right when I got over there. Mm. But um, and I'll tell you the reason why they stopped First Forty Eight is because police, the uh, Texans were turning into celebrities, mm. and every a lot of those guys on First Forty Eight were known throughout the city. You know, people knew them by name, and so. Uh, the chief thought they were just getting a little bit too big for themselves. So (laughs) he cut the, and you know, one thing that first 48 did for us though, it did increase our recruiting ability Mm. because when people saw first 48, you know, and you know, everybody goes, I want to work in Dallas. I want to be a homicide detective. So um, my last five years, I went to homicide as a sergeant, enjoyed it. And I know that sounds kind of morbid, but you know, um, and one of the things that we, you know, we would always say, no one has the right to take someone else's life. No one has that right. I don't care what kind of person they are, what they were doing, unless it's self-defense. But, and so we, uh, as a detective, and I was not a detective, I was a sergeant, but I supervised the detectives. But, you know, we thought or we think as it's our duty to catch these people.
3: Mm-hmm. And,
2: and, and they think they're smarter than we are, and they think they're going to get away with it. But a lot of times, and one of the things, you know, the last year that I was in homicide, uh, Dallas had 168 murders. I think I responded to about half of those, probably mm-hmm. 80 murders. And so, but one of the, you know, I always tell people that, you know, no one has the right to take someone else's life. And so we, we uh, but people, they don't publicize the fact that, you know, they, they'll tell you that the murder rate was high in Dallas, but a lot of those murders are solved. I'm talking about 60 to 7% of the murders are solved in Dallas. They don't talk about that, you know. And another thing is, I tell people all the time, you know, murder is a crime of opportunity. You know, there's no way that police officers can stop people from murdering folks. Mm -hmm. People do murders when they want to. And if the police was around, they wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was kind of a bad um, metric to measure the effectiveness of a police chief by the murder rate. Because it's something that police can't control. If you remember the movie, um, what was it? Tom Cruise and the, um, when they were actually catching people before they do the crime. Oh,
1: he, my Minority
2: Report. Yep. Yeah. That ain't real. <laughs> yeah. know, minority Report is not real. So there's no way that we can catch people before they do the murders. And so murder is a crime. Now, if we have a serial murder, then we can catch that guy. You know, we can, we can hunt him down, but you know, there, the possibility of, you know, a lot of the murders in Dallas are random murders are there murders of people that know each other a lot of it involved involve, you know involved the drug trade things like that so you know one of the, one of the thing I, I didn't like that they did to chief hall was you know they used the metric of murder the murder count has a bad mark on her and really no police chief can control the murders in their mm-hmm. city you know cuz if people want to murder someone they do it. they do it when it's good for them when it's convenient for them not you know if the police around they're not going to do it but i'd like to tell you about one of the um you know the the last murder that i worked or that i was in conjunction with was kendra hatcher and uh she was a dentist that lived downtown in dallas Mm -hmm. and a young dentist that lived downtown and a very pretty attractive young lady and um she got murdered uh and it was like a murder for hire deal. Very involved. It, it, I mean, I guarantee you, you'll probably see a movie in a couple of years about it.
1: Cletus, uh, was 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 this the, the case where she was she was actually killed
2: in a parking garage. Is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. Mm-hmm. She was um actually um came home, she was dating a guy that was a dermatologist. Mm-hmm. He was playing around with a um dental hygienist. He was dating both of them. Now, the dental hygienist, uh, he was helping her out financially, paying some bills for her. And he had told her, I guess he had, you know, he had finally decided that he was going to settle down with the um, with the dentist. And um, she the dental hygienist was not ready to accept that. And she actually had her friend, a female friend, go and hire somebody to kill her. Mm. And it was just ridiculous. And so I never forgot, I was down there at that day at the uh, hotel, uh, not the hotel, but at the um, apartment complex in uh, in the parking garage. And the way we caught the the initial lady was that um, we kept watching the video of cars, all the cars that were going out right after the murder. And it Mm -hmm. was that um, we got a license plate of a Jeep. And the Jeep, was actually um, owned by a guy that um, we put the Jeep on TV and uh, has a newscast and said, anybody know anything about this Jeep? The guy that owned the Jeep said, hey, that's my Jeep, but I I didn't have the car. And he said, well, you need to come down here. So we brought him down there. He came down and said, look, I own an automobile repair shop. I had somebody come in. I'm fixing on their car. I let them have this particular Jeep and let them use it you know, while I was working on wow. the car. Hmm. So he told us who he gave it to. So we pulled that girl down there, we went and got her, pulled her down to the office and she would initially, she, she was tough. She wouldn't give up anything for a while. And then we started um, reminding her that she's got a young kid and if she, you know, it depends on how she works this case, whether she'll get to see this kid ever in her life or wow. never. And so when we reminded her of that, she accepted and she took responsibility. And then she told us, Hey, I hired this guy. She told us the guy that she hired, went and tracked him down. He admitted, yeah, she gave me some money and some dope to kill this lady. Wow. And then they, then they all turned on the lady, the dental hygienist. And I mean, they told us that, Hey, we didn't do this on our own. We were told by this lady that she's the one that paid us to do this. So she had ran to Mexico. And we I think there was a $50,000 reward out for her. We hadn't seen her in about three or four weeks. And finally, someone um, from Mexico called us and said, um, she's down here. And, and so uh, one of the things that Mexico, uh, in Mexico, if they extradite somebody back to the United States, we cannot... Um, they cannot get the death penalty. We can only incarcerate them for life. That's an agreement that we have with Mexico, or that Mexico has with us. And so we extradited back back her. She's in prison for the rest of her life. And the guy that killed her, uh, I'm not sure what the other lady got, but that was the um, last murder that I worked. And one of the things I, I tell you, you know, it was just not funny, but. Um, that I went to both of these ladies' houses. I went to the dental hygienist house and to the um, to dentist's house, and they were totally polar opposite people. I mean, not, not alike. The, dental, the dentist was very health conscious, uh, had a lot of vitamins. Uh, you know, when we go in people's houses, we go through everything and, you know, just closet, very neat, very nice. She had all these different kinds of waters in a refrigerator. I'll never forget that. A lot of vitamins and water all over the counter. And just very neat and nice. And then I went to the the other lady's house and just nasty.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: I, 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 you know, total polar officers. And I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't see what this guy, this dermatologist, you know, what he saw in this other lady. But he, I mean, that was like, and he was real callous. He, I mean, when, um, only thing he kind of asked us about, uh, he wanted to know when could he get his passport. Because his passport mm-hmm. was at the dentist's house. Well, you know but she was a very nice lady she did a lot of um dental work for um pro bono for you know underserved communities too mm-hmm. so i remember yeah. that case yeah,
0: yeah. That, it was it's quite
2: publicized uh, yes. quite a bit uh-huh. mm-hmm. it, it actually made 2020 and I, um not too long ago the the um eric barnes is the um lead detective on that case very sharp young man very sharp he did a good job on that case and um I guarantee, I'm not guarantee, but I, I foresee a movie about her in a couple of years.
1: Yeah, and Cletus said that that case ringed, uh, or rang or ranked really close to me because it actually occurred less than three blocks away from where I live. Where you and live so, now? Yeah, where I live now. Yeah, so I, I was I was down here when that happened, and so that was a that was a case that just rattled, you know, th- this section of downtown. How, how do you, as someone that, that worked in, in uh, that department, and like you said, you've been a part of so many of those murders, from a mindset standpoint, how do you turn that off? And, and, and how do you decompress and just not let some of the things that you see and the cases that you experience just overwhelm you?
2: Yeah, well, you know, when, one of the things I tell people all the time, and it might sound a little callous, but um, a lot of the murders that we go to, that I went to, um, like nobody has a right to take someone's life, but some of these people were were involved in dealings or business that resulted in death as a byproduct. Like I said, you know, if you if you want to be a window washer of skyscrapers or tall buildings, you know, there's a possibility that you may fall. You might fall, right? So if you want to be a drug dealer, if you want to be a robber, if you want to, you know, be involved in things that are callous and that may lead to death. i not saying that it's right, but I'm saying, mm-hmm. so it kind of takes the sting for me out of yeah. it. But like I said, now when innocent folks get killed
3: mm-hmm. and,
2: and like, you know, Kendra Hatcher and like, we had this one murder. Well, I, it was a murder, but we had a guy that came home over in Oak Cliff, came home and went in the house and I think someone called him or told him that his his light was on inside his car. He went outside, and some people about two or three streets over were shooting a gun in the air, and a bullet came down and hit him and killed him. Wow. So, you know, that's hard, kind of gut wrenching. That's kind of heart wrenching. And not trying to be callous, but, you know, those are far and few between. But a lot of times, we, you know, drug trade in Dallas is pretty big. And a lot of the times, you know, people are involved in that particular. You know, death is a byproduct of being, a, you know, and people that are robbing folks and things like that, people robbing drug houses. But one of the things is I try to, you know, one of the things is that calms my mind and that soothes my mind is the fact that we catch the person that did it, regardless of who the victim was. And we put all the energy. And like, I don't know if you, you know, but like that first 48, when when you say the first 48 is the most crucial time, because we, we get on things quick. And I like, we get them, like, I, if I get a murder call when I was working, if I get a call at one o'clock at night and respond to a murder scene, I might not go back home until three o'clock the next day, mm-hmm. three p.m. So we, we're on it for you know fifteen, sixteen hours straight. But the first, the first forty-eight hours is the most crucial. And so, um, you know, but one of the things, like I say, you know, we, I, 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 don't know what I did with it, but it was a little. We had a a, a mantra that we used to um, read. I don't know what I did, it. I thought I had it, but it was a, you know, and one of them saying that no one has a right to take someone else's life and we're going to make it our business and to, to catch this person. And we'll spend turn over every stone, uncover every stone till we find the person that took someone. Cause every time when you think about someone's death, that's somebody's child, that's somebody's loved one. So, you know, they were, they, they didn't leave on their own accord. You know, someone took their life. And so that's one of the things about, you know, working at homicide. And I just said, you know, once you start going to them, you know, like I say, now children, the death of a child really disturbs me. You know, anytime I saw a child that was killed or, or, you know, that really disturbs me and suicides. We, you know, one thing about in the city of Dallas, we respond to all deaths, not just murders, but we you know, natural deaths, suicides. And so we have to determine that what it is, is what it is, you know. Right. So just if someone dies, we have to make sure that it's not, um, you know, foul play. And one of the, I think one another one of the final um, cases that I worked on was that Billy Shamir, The I don't know if you remember the guy that was um, dressed, he acted like a healthcare worker, and he was actually, Killing a lot of older people in the city of Dallas. Yes. And, you know, okay,
1: I didn't know my name, but I re- I remember yeah. the story. That's yeah. Story.
2: Yeah. 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 He, you know, we we don't know how many people he killed, because okay. he he did some in Collin County, some in Dallas, mm-hmm. and he was in a lot of uh, he's posing as a caretaker for older people. And one of the things I'm not trying to indict folks, but you know, a lot of these people were old, and their loved ones weren't checking on them. You know, they they left it up to this guy and, and you know, and um the night that we got on to him that I responded to a call, went to a call up in Fort North Dallas, and um somebody found the lady's keys were gone to her car and you know, and we and I never forget her husband, the lady's husband was dead, but he was a uh I guess he'd been in the air force or something, but they had a lot of models, airplanes all over the house that were hanging from the ceiling. I mean, the ceiling was just full of these airplane models. Very nice house up in far north Dallas, but that that was Billy Shamir. And, um, you know, he's in prison for life right now, but they don't know how many people because a lot of these people were older citizens and a lot of them, some of them had ailments and uh, health issues. And so some of them were dead, you know, have been dead and buried. So nobody's doing any exhumations or we just don't know how many people this guy killed. But he, he was, uh, that, that Now nah, he was a serious murderer. He was yeah. a serious murderer.
1: You know, Cletus, just even based on just the, the short conversation we've had, it, it's, it's evidently clear that law enforcement is a tough, tough job. And the men and women that are involved in law enforcement have a difficult challenge every single day. And you never know what you're actually going to be getting into, whether you're patrolling the streets as a traffic cop or, you know, you're working in the, in the homicide division. Now, the last several years in our media, it, it's become evident that there's been a, a major rift in terms of the, the general public and the police department. And, you know, one of the highlights from 2021 in terms of our news media was the coverage of what happened with George Floyd. And mm-hmm. I'm curious to ask you, when that happened, you know, what was your observations and what, were your, what was your take on that? And then I think Sam and I wanna talk to you a little bit about some of the challenges that the police have with different communities here um, in our country. And and what are some of the things that we can do to to make it better?
2: Yeah, well, I I think, you know, I was really struck by that and and just really, I I just couldn't believe that the uh, officer didn't, or was not conscious of what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And not only um, Chauvin, but these other officers that were working with him because, you know, Someone should have said, hey, even, you know, if speaking to him wouldn't make him stop, I would have physically pulled him off of this guy. Mm-hmm. And, and you just can't, I mean, you know, I don't know where, what, you know, what, where he was mentally to not think that, you know, and I, I've heard people all the time say, I can't breathe or, you know, but, you know, we have to release those people. We have to, like, you know, even if they are lying, if they if they don't mean it, but I just don't understand how. You know, these other officers could stand around and not do anything, not try to move, remove him, not trying to get him off. But one thing I tell, um, I tell the people right now where I'm working at and I said, you know, this is my thought that, you know, police academies are the gatekeepers for police officers. And Mm -hmm. I, I just I just don't think that I think that, you know, this is not the first time that Chauvin had had done something. And I, I really think that he probably did something in the academy, but people kind of blew it off and mm-hmm. people kind of excused him. And that's what I always tell, you know, you know, when you see something like that or you see some type of idiosyncrasy in a police officer, because, you know, this profession is not, is not like any other profession. Mm-hmm. And we, uh, the police officers are given the ability to take people's liberty, to, to physically harm people and that's not, no other profession gives people that right Mm -hmm. to do that, so we can't have idiots, we can't have fools doing this job, and when we see people, and like one thing I say, you know, when you, when they see people that have a, uh, we have the, in Dallas, this early warning system, when, when you start seeing an officer getting a lot of excessive use of force and things like that, but I think, you know, if it's, excessive force to the point that they haven't hurt anybody then we can do some counseling but when they start hurting people and and when it gets to be excessive they need to be let go and another thing is they shouldn't be able to go get a job somewhere else Mm. and and I just was shocked by the fact that Chauvin was able to do this with three more officers standing there Mm -hmm. And, and the guy was hollering and saying I can't breathe and they just sat there And and so I'm really shocked about that. And one of the things that I, you know, that whole incident does is a lot of people don't have trust in police anyway. Mm -hmm. So now you've given people the right to think that their presumptions and their thoughts about police are correct. And I guarantee you, there's a small percentage of police that are bad, but there are a lot more police officers that are good. Mm -hmm. And there are far more than good than are bad. But there, you know, I'm willing to admit that some people. Not necessarily don't respect the lives of other people, and not just black people, but in, some people just mean, and mm-hmm. you know, and, and so. But we need to get rid of those officers. We need to pre- prevent them from getting any type of job in law enforcement at all. And when you, when we see that officer that has that problem, we need, they need to get rid of them. And one thing I see now is that police departments are doing that because number one, the um, The punitive damages, can really hurt you, you know, when people are suing these cities and people are getting paid. And then, like I said, you know, as a police chief, if you want to, you know, if someone kills somebody under your watch, you ain't getting another job. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be hard for you to be transferred or something like that. So people now are taking accountability, accountability for their officers and their actions. And I think it's long overdue but I think you're going to see a, a difference in policing. I think you're going to see, and one of the things I, you know, I, I, I was on a podcast a couple of months ago and this lady, you know, these people talking about defunding the police. And I wanted I, to ask you about that. Yeah. I, you know, it's kind of funny. And I, 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 this lady made me really mad because the people that you hear that from are the ones that live in gated communities and live in, <laughs> uh, you know, it, I, you when you don't when you never have to call the police <laughs> it, it's okay to defund them right but you know but these people live in gated communities in neighborhoods and zip codes that they never phone the police so mm-hmm. it wouldn't make a difference to them but I guarantee you people that live in hard tough neighborhoods they're not for defunding the police they want more police and they want you know so that, that that's the craziest thing I've ever heard of because you know you might can defund the police in holland park Mm-hmm. When the last time they had a murder up there? But yeah. I, get to, you know, so that's the craziest term that when people talk about defunding the police. Now, one of the things that they can do is like, um, and people think, you know, um, there's a lot of training on, on um, far as, um, you know, sensitivity, cultural sensitivity, and things like that. That's that's not new, and it, mm-hmm. it goes on. But one of the things is that this, um, you know we might can um because a lot of times these people practice this bias that they don't realize they're practicing and you know this you know there's a lot of biases that people have they don't realize and when you let your biases you know uh control your conduct then that's a problem but you know there's you know we could do more bias training and things like that with police departments and um you know but a lot of times you know most people want the police in their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Most people Want to protect the protection of the police for their property and for their w- own well-being, But a lot of times, like say, you know, people get bad taste in their mouth and police officers do bad things. And one of the things that I just can't understand now with the proliferation of um, people with cameras and with their cell phones, wh- how can an officer just continue to do stupid stuff?
3: Yeah. When, we, when,
2: when everybody's got a phone, when there's cameras all over the place, and people still do stupid stuff. Cletus, a few minutes ago, you mentioned
1: that, like, you you, you thought that there were going to be a few things that police would be doing differently. Mm-hmm. What are what are some of those things? Does that go into some of the training or some of the some of the ongoing things, or, or what are some of those things that you see perhaps coming in the future?
2: Yeah, well, one of the things is this bias training, police uh-huh. legit, you know, police legitimacy, and when people, and, and one thing, you know, we have to educate the public. And also, when people think that what police do is legitimate, you know, and one of the things we always should we tell people, you know, if I ask you, say, hey, man, let me see what's in your hand. But, you know, if I tell you, hey, we just got a call out here and there's a guy that fits your description, I need to, you know, when I explain it to you and legitimize my reason for talking to you, you're a little bit more apt to to comply with what I'm asking. And so that's one of the things that we're asking police because, you know, in days of old people a lot of police officers did what they did because they were police and they think hey i'm the police i can tell you what to do and you got to do it but we have to legitimize every interaction with with our with citizens we have to let people know i'm not just and i use the term jacking with you i have a, I'm, I'm here because i got a call i'm here because there was a call in this neighborhood and you fit the description, or your car looks like the car that was given the description. And when mm-hmm. people, police um, articulate that to citizens, then they feel a little bit more legitimized in their dealings with police officers. And those are some—that's a big thing right now: um, procedural justice and police legitimacy. Those are two of the new terms that they're do—they're utilizing in a lot of police agencies, and it's some training that goes on with that. And uh, you know, another big thing that you've heard about is de-escalation is Mm -hmm. not going to the extreme initially. And one of the things, one of the problems with that, not a problem with it, but but people need to understand here in the city of Dallas and in a lot of cities, there's a huge population of people that are suffering from mental disease. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to, you know, to deal with people that are in crisis. And you got to have some special kind of skills to deal with that. And so that's a that, that those are some popular those are some issues that police can't solve. And so you know with you know with the homelessness and the people out there you know and and you all know dealing with vulgar alcohol, mm-hmm. the amount of people that are homeless are a lot of those people are suffering from mental illness. Yeah. A large percentage of those people. And so some of those things that they're asking police officers to do, more training. And you know, some police officers, some police departments are even having these mental health units to respond to calls with the police. Yeah, you know?
0: I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that I had heard, and we discussed this a little bit. And uh, getting ready for, for this conversation with you, you know, you hear so much about the amount of training that, like a, a let's say, like in the military, like a special forces uh, training goes into. Right? They they train, they practice, they they uh, get ready for a specific mission, right? And then they go out there and then they take on that mission head first, and then they accomplish their goals, right? Whatever yeah. those may be. Greg brought up this point last night when we were talking about this: was that you know, police they have to train for every mission all the time, no matter what, right? Yes. So that you know, anytime that they're on duty or even off duty, right? They they have to go. They're they're encountering a different scenario with a multitude of variables. So how do you think that they, somebody can necessarily prepare better than what they have now, if that's one of the answers, right? In the training, what what else can they possibly do when it seems like it's an insurmountable task to even like to, to begin to even start?
2: Well, I think the first thing that, you know, police departments are doing are keying in on the type of calls that they seem to re- be responding to, the most mm-hmm. and keying in on the calls that are causing us the most problems and when you look at it the uh domestic disturbances one of the calls that you know problems that cause us a lot of problems and all the other is people dealing with people with mental issues mm-hmm. and those are the causes. and like you know every time uh, not every time but majority of the time when you look at some of these calls and when someone gets shot then they'll tell you oh this person was in crisis mm-hmm. and the police officers didn't know you know use the de-escalation uh, techniques. But one of the things that we teach people to do is um, distance is your friend. The, the more distance between you and the suspect, especially someone suffering from mental illness, the better it's for the police officer, because then you have time to react. But let's say if, if I come into contact with the suspect or with the person in a mental crisis, and I run up on that person and try to take control of them quickly, then they pull out a gun or a knife and I got to shoot them. But if I had to stay my distance from that person, tried to talk them down, give them, you know, there's a lot of training on this de-escalation, and it's very, it's deep. It ain't, it ain't, you know, it won't be accomplished in a day, but mm-hmm. to get police officers to learn, first of all, you got to build a rapport with the person. Then you have to get that person to think, I said to think, to to believe and to to think that you're genuinely there and care about their well being. That takes some time. And so, you know, we have to get people to respond to calls like that. And so the biggest thing is that to give people distance and not, you know, rush in, because I tell people all the time, you know, and especially when people call, um, you know, when the the mother calls the police on her son that's in crisis. Now, if you can't control him and he's your loved one, he's Mm -hmm. your son and you brought him into the world. What do you think's going to happen when a total stranger shows up? You know, you you know, and I understand, but people ask police to do a lot. And I had, uh, you know, and, and some people, you know, said that um, I was at a town hall meeting a couple. It's been a couple of months ago, and an attorney was there. He goes, "Well, you all are trained for that. No, we're not trained for that. You know, and, and there is some training going on, but you know, the 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 level of training that that you you know." People go to, to school for years to become psychologists mm-hmm. and therapists. You, there, there's not enough time to make a police a therapist, you know. And so, you know, let's let's be real. And I tell people all the time, you know, and I hate to say this, but you need to be reluctant—not reluctant, but you need to be real cautious about calling the police to deal with someone in crisis, because, you know, it's going to be hard for them to get if you. They love one, and you can't control them. Mm-hmm. Which you know, it's going it, you know, and you look at the statistics; it hasn't been well for police mm-hmm. dealing with people in crisis. And we're taking these um, de-escalation classes and stuff like that, but it's a time-consuming process, not only for the training, but also when you're there on the scene to gain control of somebody. To well, gain you know. Control. Cletus, you know, one of the things that Sammy and I talk
1: about in our book that we wrote, and we, we talk about it as an underlining theme in this Pursuit of Growth show is mental health in our culture and our world is a major challenge just across the board. And, you know, there there's studies that you can read that there are more mental health issues in our society than any time in recorded history. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the severe case of these, we're asking law enforcement to basically go into these situations that we've allowed in terms of our culture to, to take place and we're almost asked them to come and fix a solution. And we're we're putting law enforcement in very, very difficult circumstances to your point that man, it, it's gotten so bad that it's the root issue isn't being addressed. We're yeah. asking law enforcement to come in and try to solve the symptoms, but we're not getting down to the root issue. And I know that's a that's a big 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 uh you know statement, but man, it's just in terms of police, how do you guys feel like, do you just feel like you're overwhelmed? Do you feel like, you know, what's what's the rationale, what's the mindset of the, of the general officer and the law enforcement being put up against this obstacle?
2: Well, a lot of police do feel overwhelmed. And like uh, Chief Brown said this um, before he left, you know, people are asking police to do a lot more. They're asking us to be social workers. They're asking us to be therapists, financial consultants. They're asking us to be divorce lawyers. And... <laughs> You know, police have a big role to do, and uh, they're being asked to be a lot. So the more you ask people to do, uh, when you think and conclude that there is going to be some issues, there are going to be some shortcomings with that. And police officers do feel overwhelmed. They do feel that, you know, we're being asked to do a lot. And like I say, we need some help from the government to to take over some of these things. Like I say, you know, um, we don't don't have um, insane asylums anymore. And people, there's a taboo on anybody saying anything about mental health, so nobody seeks help anymore. And then, like I said, you know, by the time somebody realizes that they need help, they're so far off that, you know, and like I said, the homelessness problem is just the um, extension of the mental illness. Because I tell people all the time, you know, just imagine if you were homeless. I could, I mean, I was in the army. I'm, I I could stay out in the woods in a couple of nights, but you know, I'm not a lot of people couldn't deal with that. And so I tell people all the time if you're homelessness, there's going to be a set uh there's some mental illness that goes with homes. It's oh, just absolutely you no, know, that's a part of the that's that's far for that course because people are outside, they don't have control of of their lives they don't you know you can't go to the bathroom when you want you can't go to the you can't take a shower you can't clean up you don't know when you're going to eat your next meal so there's a lot of things that going on and police do feel overwhelmed And, and like I said you know they're asking for like um you know I think you know people are a lot of the um you know some of the organizations are trying to do more and trying to you know get control over these things but police you know the things that are blatant when when the police there's no sense for a police shooting somebody running away from it. Mm-hmm. That 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 don't make no sense. And you know, sometimes like you know, some of these things that are being caught on camera are just too far, you yeah. know. And, and and police need to take responsibility when we do things, and I tell people all the time, you know, we all make mistakes. And when we do make mistakes, we need to own up to it. Mm-hmm. Don't lie about it, don't try to cover it up, and just you know suffer so the consequences because one thing about it, when we get police officers doing bad things out here, it makes it bad for all police. Because the only thing that that person remembers is not that particular police, they remember that uniform. That's, the, that's what mistreated me and I'm not gonna forgive them. So we ask officers all the time that you know you need to be conscious because the way you treat a person, you leave a bad taste in that person's mouth for the next police officer. You know,
0: you, you speak a lot, sorry to cut you off, but you speak a lot about, you know, the, or it's, it's spoken a lot right now um, in society about mental health, right. And then and self-care and, and self-love and, and, you know, the, you get your mind right and all that kind of thing. Take time for yourself. Has there been a lot of, of outreach to police officers or, or law enforcement um, with programs or services in which they're providing those types of services to help, you know, police officers, law enforcement, like, understand that more. It seems like you know, so much is like put on us. Like so much help is there, and maybe because it's a business aspect, right? I can help you with your mental health, calm yourself down, whatever you know, techniques. But I don't see a lot of attention that's being paid, and maybe it's just because I'm not in this profession. Are there services provided to the officers now more yes, than, than there has been?
2: There are, but I'm just going to be honest with you. A lot of police departments do offer services and do offer um, counseling for officers and for their families, but a lot of police officers won't participate because th- there's a, necessarily a, 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 a taboo.
3: Yeah, that's a right?
2: they don't want people, you're correct, they don't want people to think that there's something wrong with them right. or they're not tough enough to do the job. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they, they, they do tell you it's confidential and you can set up an appointment. We have the Dallas Police has a counselor, counseling services for the police officer and their family. But I, I would um, beg to, you know, say how many people actually participate in that because there's a taboo attached to it. And like I said, you know, You know, one thing I noticed that, you know, suicides are not that in Dallas, you know, we haven't had a lot of, I remember several suicides, but like lately in the last couple of years, I don't remember a lot of police officers committing suicide. But when I first got here, that was a big problem, suicide and divorce. But um, I I don't see a lot of suicides right now with police officers. And like a lot of times, um, you know, and we always tell police officers when I was at the police academy, Number one is police officers need an outlet other than, like, we always tell people, get friends that ain't police. You know, you need to get hang around folks that ain't police because when police get together, all we talk about is police stuff. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of friends that aren't police officers. And, like, you know, I got friends that are, you know, executives. Some of them are executives. Some are lawyers some, you know, guys, you know, hard work, hard hat workers and stuff, so I have a variety of friends, truck drivers and stuff like that, but we always tell people to seek friendship other than with police officers, and also to get involved in something besides working like um, Little League baseball coaching, you know, something to have another outlet to, you know, to kind of even yourself out, but a lot of times also just, you know, they love the job, and they get you know overwhelmed by the job but suicides have gone down tremendously in the dallas area for dallas police well cletus this is kind of the, the fourth quarter
1: of our show okay. and i've got to tell you this man i appreciate the stories that you've shared and the just the straightforward just nature of this conversation has been really eye-opening to me and okay. uh, man, man I've, I've loved everything about your transparency and your candor um, but as we start kind of wrapping up towards the end of the show, Sammy and I have questions that we ask every guest that joins us on our podcast. Sure. And so the first one's kind of subjective in nature. And so it's really the first thing that comes to your mind. But, you know, what what's one of maybe your favorite actual tips? Maybe it's a method or a lesson learned from your life in terms of self-improvement and personal development. What's been something that's been really important to you?
2: okay one of the things i tell you man you got to have a tenacity you got to have a don't quit attitude and just you know i've always been driven by success and, and like um and that's one of the things that just you know that i've i've not been around but like like I'm i'll tell you one of the things the biggest thing and i it's a pub for my fraternity but um uh, Kappa Alpha Psi, I pledge a fraternity back in and one thing I'll tell people all the time, and, and white guys don't understand this, but I'll tell people <laughs> all the time, and I think I, me and you talked about this before, in the, I, black, I, I community, gonna say. In the black community, uh, fraternities and sororities go way past college, it, it, you you never get out, it's like the mafia, and, you know, <laughs> and, and so w- when we pledge a fraternity in college, it's for life, and, and you know, And I've been active in my fraternity ever since uh, I played in 1984 and and, in undergrad, and I've been in the alumni chapter ever since, never been out. And so, but one of the big uh, tenets in our fraternity is being successful and uh, 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 achievement. That's what we talk about, achievement. And that's the driver, you know, that fraternity being introduced to these fraternity people that I grew up with, I mean, some of the guys in my community now. I remember back in Stockton, Alabama, when I was a young boy, and several guys came home from college, and uh, you know my fraternity, we're the one with the canes, twirling the canes, red and white, and they were they were twirling the canes, and I was like I was just impressed and mesmerized by them, and I was like, man, those guys are sharp. They're going to college, and, and I'll tell you a story, and I, I'm, I'm kind of digressing, but I never forget. I went to um, I was in college and one of my roommate's friends was a Kappa. And we're sitting in the dorms, we didn't have anything to do. And you remember your college days, you're always hungry. And so um, my, my my college roommate's friend said, hey, my fraternity alumni chapter is having a picnic, would you all like to go? And we like free food and beer? And mm-hmm. we go, yes, we're, we're, we're going. So we all got in the car and we drove out to this guy's house and a first man, first black guy I ever seen with a Mercedes, was just the owner of the house, and he had a house. It was a spread. It was about four hundred people at his house. Oh, wow. He had a he was on had a big yard, had I mean, a big backyard, and it was huge. And he had these big pavilions out there. And um, I never seen that many people at somebody's house. And so he said, um, my friend's cousin, um roommate. He said, "He, he guy said, hey, man, I need you all to go and get some ice. And so we said, okay, we'll go get some ice. So we got in the car and we're getting ready to go. He goes, what are y'all doing? He says, we're getting ready to go get some ice. He goes, go in the house and get the ice, man. So we go in the guy's house and there's these big refrigerators, like in the cafeteria at school. Yeah. I mean, a whole. He ice oh, machine. Yeah, no, he had his whole wall of of refrigerators (laughs) and you know, these, those silver big, I mean, I was like, and I go, man, what does this guy do? He goes, he's a dentist. And I go, and and he's a Kappa. I go, I'm going to be a Kappa. (laughs) (laughs) So, and so that, that was one of the biggest and in our fraternity, man, I mean, that's a big thing being achieving, and not necessarily just achieving financial success, Mm -hmm. but also one of the other tenets is service in the community. That's another, mm-hmm. that's another tenant in our fraternity. And that's what, you know, has, you know, governed me most of my life. You know, I've been a member since 1984 and, and just seeing the Catholics and seeing what they do and how they are involved in the community and just achievement in every field of human endeavor.
3: In arts. I love that.
2: I love so, that. And so that's what I, you know, that's one of the drivers for me, you know, to to be successful, I and mean, you can see back here this, all these plaques and all this capital stuff. You know that's my fraternity, and I'm just proud to be a member. You know, that's so awesome. that's what that's what drives me.
0: The the second question that we like to ask our guests is is an interesting take on an old on an old question. So you've probably heard the question in the past. If you could go back in time ten years, what would you tell yourself, right? That's not the question that we're asking. (laughs) So what we've done is we said, if we could go forward 10 years from now, what would you tell yourself in 10 years? So imagine a time capsule, right? We're going to bury something, write a note in it, bury it. 10 years from now, we're going to open that up. What would that note to yourself say?
2: Mine would say probably you should have, um, enjoyed yourself a little bit more, Mm -hmm. you know, I probably should have, um, and still have time to do is, you know, enjoy myself. And one, it's kind of funny that you, um, mentioned that, but one of the things I've gotten into in the last couple of years is, um, and I know Greg, I I can look at Greg and tell that he's into this is being in mindfulness. Mm -hmm. You know, I've really started to get into that because, um, you know a lot of times we're in situations where i always have to you know sometimes you get bogged down in thinking what's wrong and what's not right but we need to 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 enjoy the moment and think what is right mm-hmm. what is you know and so i try to stay in the moments and, and and be more mindful of what i'm doing and like i said it really started in my golf game because i realized that i'm not the guy that can um excuse my language, I, I'm not, I can't talk smack and play golf at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so I got to concentrate on my game and I have to be in the mind, mindfulness of my golf game. And I have to be mindful, like, you know, I don't take my phone out there with me when I'm playing golf and, you know, and I try to not only enjoy my golf game, but enjoy the friendship and the camaraderie of mm. the people that I'm playing with. Mm -hmm. regardless how bad i'm playing regardless if i'm not making putts, i want to enjoy that moment and so that's the last couple of years man and that's what i i I try to spend my time and like even with my little grandson when he's when he's here at their house you know i just want to be mindful and then i I try to teach him something or, or or you know just give him little words of wisdom and um you know, when he's with, he's eight years old and he's a smart little kid and he'll tell me, he says, "Um, you know, we were in the car one day and um, and I said something to him and I, oh, and he'll tell you, if you ask him, he says, sometime you're going to be, and you know what he'll say? Uncomfortable. Because mm-hmm. I'm talking that. I go, sometime you will be uncomfortable. And I'll tell him, He'll if you ask him, if you ever see him and said, hey, sometime you'll be, and he'll say, uncomfortable. And I want him to know that you're not going to be comfortable all the time. You're not going to be feeling good. You're not going to be all right with the world. And you're not going to be satisfied all the time. Sometimes you're going to be uncomfortable. And some of the things, that's some of the things, every time I'm with him and I, you know, I try to impart some knowledge and I just want to, I'm trying to program, I'm trying to program that, hey, you're smart, you're, you're intelligent you're going to be something. And I constantly drive that home to him. And that's what I work on right now with him. He's just a good little kid. Clayton,
1: I'm so happy you shared that. It, it, it's, it comes at a good time. Every day I write something down on my legal pad that has, like, all my goals and things that I want to accomplish for the day. It's kind of a governing goal. And this week it's been slow down and enjoy the moment. And yes. I have to stop and remind myself um, not to get too far thinking in the past and not get too far ahead thinking into the future because in the past that's where depression lives and in the future that's where anxiety lives. Now I want to have a sharp eye to the future, but I need to be focusing on today and just be grateful for all the things that are going on today. Man, I appreciate you saying that. And then about being uncomfortable, that's mm, you know, if you gold. can get to a point where you're gold. when you're when you're comfortable being uncomfortable, man, yeah. that is that is a peace of mind to, to live in. Yes.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And man, that, that kind of that kind of brings us to a good point in uh, in the show where this is, I think sammy and i's favorite part and the hardest part of the show Uh-oh. this is where we are going to share with you three things that each of us have taken from this conversation okay sammy i don't know about you but i got a sheet and a half here to go through <laughs> i got
0: so many notes and, so, uh, and the thing about it is i i couldn't write fast enough i mean it's i'm gonna have to rewatch this one and transcribe this one to get all the good the goodness Uh-oh. out of it so
1: yeah this this has been a good one but do you want to go first or you want me to lead off go ahead greg Okay, so I'm going to take something that you said, um, Cletus, when you were talking about being in a situation where it's, it's an escalated kind of dangerous situation, you said distance is your friend, you know, build rapport and, and show that individual that you care. Well, when I heard you say that, I thought about people that I work with. I thought about family members and friends that You know, we, we, in life, we're always having conflict. Conflict is a part of our, of our, our lives. And that's just a good three-step process about when we find ourselves in situations, you know, with, with people that we're close to, or even if we find ourselves just out in society and, you know, you come across that circumstance where things aren't going well, distance is your friend, build rapport and show the people there that you care. And that is a recipe for success. So that was a big takeaway for me. Okay.
0: I love that um you stole that one from me but that's fine i'll let you have that one (laughs) um something i mean i have so many of these so it's going to be really tough but i'm going to stick to my top three so i think one of the things that you you mentioned about that i think this sage wisdom for all walks of life is what you tell other officers and police officers is that you should be seeking friendship with others that are outside of of your niche outside of other police officers and seek outlets um, to kind of even out your life too, right? Because I think so many times people are gravitated to people that are like-minded individuals, Um, but there's so much value, I think, in being able to explore, especially with other people from other walks of life. You said you've got businessmen, you've got executives, you've got truck drivers, you've got hard hats. I mean, I think more than ever, one of the reasons why I love this podcast and this show we do and and i'm a people person is that i get to meet and understand more people like yourself and we've had mental health workers we've had baseball players we've had a police officer and a detective and a sergeant down too so i think other people should strive to do that as well seek the friendship of others and seek the insight from other people as well that are different from them and i think that it will help provide a long lasting and 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 a good approach to, to seeking, um, answers in their life.
1: Cletus, I love when you talked about dress sharp. Yeah. And, 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 And here, and here's why I think that's important. Um, I think people should care about the way they present themselves. I've learned this in my life that if I take a sloppy and lazy approach to my appearance, I feel sloppy and lazy in life. And that doesn't mean that you've got to be wearing Versace and the newest trends, but like there are very simple things that you can do shopping at Walmart or at Goodwill. Just making sure you feel put together. You know, you're wearing clothes that fit properly. You're presenting yourself to where you feel like you're put together and you're showing up in a way that other people are going to look at you and say, man, that that guy or that woman's put together. And I think that's a a big, big step in terms of, of growing confidence in ourselves. And so I like how you talked about you know when you're a detective you're like hey we're going to make sure we present ourselves well so we're showing up people see it but we feel it ourselves.
3: Correct, correct.
0: One of the biggest things that you said was in in uh, it was in conjunction with the the phrases about the elements of danger that are associated with the types of activities that you get yourself into, and so kind of the sage wisdom there was and the way that i interpreted it was careful the path that you choose and because you are aware of the consequences that could happen no matter what it is you know the byproducts in Mm -hmm. what you're doing and so i think that's that's wise i mean whether it be you know you're going to jump off a cliff into a pond you never know what's down underneath there uh, to the company you keep. But I think that's a good awareness, a self-awareness that you should have. That careful the path that you choose, beware of the consequences.
1: Cletus, through this whole conversation, there there was there was one theme that jumped out to me that um, I wanted to share. And that is you have a no excuses mentality. Mm-hmm. And you know, you've been through some challenges, you've been through some trials from from when you were a very, very young little guy all the way up to the ROTC, getting into the police academy, you know, becoming a detective, going back and forth, just what you're doing now, man, you're a no excuses kind of guy. And it's, it's, it's refreshing. And you, you made a comment earlier when you were just talking about police in general, when, when mistakes happen, own up to the mistakes. Mm-hmm. And that's just something that I think in our society, so many people do not have that mindset. We're quick, quick to blame others we're quick to have victim mentality. We're quick to say, well, it wasn't, it wasn't my fault because fill in the blank. Uh, mm-hmm. I just love your attitude throughout our entire conversation. It was inspiring and it, it made an impact on me.
0: And my, my last one, uh, which is really, I'm, I'm looking at all my notes. I wanna read all my notes, but the last one that, I will, uh, that I'll pull out um, is just that phrase that you tell your grandson. Because this is something I'm going to start using on my daughters. I've got a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. And I love it when I have these shows because I pull so much knowledge out that I can share with them too. But sometimes you will be uncomfortable. And I, I try and tell them that. And, and so they, if they were in here, they would they would laugh right now because they've heard me say this so many times. I'll say, suck it up, buttercup. You uh-huh. know, like and That's my phrase. And so they'll know it too, because I'll say, suck it up. And they'll even repeat buttercup um but i love i've I've never been able to articulate it the way that you did that so i'm going to use this sometimes you'll be uncomfortable and just have that mindset too i love that Mm -hmm. so thanks for sharing that
1: okay oh man well cletus this is uh the end of our show and so uh wanted to ask you is there a way if people listen to this episode and they're like man i want to get in touch with cletus is there a way that people could reach out to connect
2: with you yeah, um, like I said, you can send me an email. Um, uh, like I said, um, aug one five one one at sbcglobal.net. and that's how you can tell how old I am because I still have a SBC Global <laughs> <laughs> email account. And, and one thing, and I, I, you know, and one thing that we didn't get to, and uh, like I want to say, you know, and like I say, I've made mistakes. I've had some issues in my life, and um, you know. And things that went wrong. And like I said, you know, by the grace of God, I've been able to recover and to go mm-hmm. through. And I tell people all the time, you know, we all carry some baggage and we all go through some things. But it's what you do when you go through these things. And like I said, um, I, I try to impart that to my sons all the time. You know, and I just, you know, one of the things that, like I said, you know, one of the things that I'm guilty of is I worked a lot when I was raising these, these boys. My wife did it. You know, because I, I was hustling, I was always working, and so I, I, I look at my grandson has a um, a mulligan, you know, and, and and I get to you know whenever he's here, when he's with us and stuff, but, you know, I spend a lot of time with him and and trying to drag him out to the golf course with me. He's not a he doesn't care much about golf like he does Fortnite, but um, <laughs> you know, but but you know, I'm saying you know. It, it, it's not, it hasn't always been good. And I, like I said, and by, by no means, and there's an old poem, And, um, I think it was, uh, but it, it says life for me, ain't been no crystal stairs, but, um, mm-hmm. uh, I've, I've not had a hard life, but it hasn't been crystal stairs, but I, I've been blessed and I've been blessed with, um, raised by some good folks, met some good folks, try to do good by folks and that that's you know that's how that's where i am and that's where you know that's where i like i tell people all the time you know and uh marion wright Elderman said you know rent you know service is the rent we pay for living yes i gotta pay some rent you know because i'm living pretty good and so yeah i I want to thank thank y'all man because this is great man and um. when, y- when y'all make it on the big screen, and uh, when y'all have that night show, that TV night show, and you know, call me back and get yes, me on. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. But this is a good deal, man. And I'm gonna start. Um, you know, y'all let me know when y'all start posting these, and I'll let my friends know about it. And uh, I-, I think y'all are two good guys, and y'all have, um, you know, some good things on your minds and good things to just to help, you know, broaden people's horizons and help people in their daily walk. You know, okay. and
1: we, we, we appreciate that, Cletus. And that's actually a good transition as we kind of start wrapping things up. Um, you know, if people want to find more about the pursuit of growth, they can go to our website, which okay. is either the pursuit or live tpg.com. And there you'll find other episodes of the pursuit of growth show. Um, we have a <laughs> weekly blog that we send out called one minute matters. And then okay. you can purchase our book that we wrote, that Cletus, what you just mentioned before I started speaking again about going through trials and making mistakes, and and man, life hasn't always been an easy path, and that's what the pursuit of growth is all about. That's the book that Sammy and I wrote, and so uh, it's been a big part of what we do and and where we're going. So so thank you for those kind words. And okay. I'll turn it over to Sammy for uh, for some last comments.
0: Yeah. So. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention was that I feel like we just scraped the surface on a lot of topics in which we can really dive into and really dig into a little bit more. I'd love to have you back on the show soon and and maybe touch base on on, on the culture and the community and and kind of the current events. You know, uh, because uh, you know there's there's so much that was learned here. My mind was racing the whole time, and and all I could do was shut up and listen. I, I felt like that was my duty at this time to to soak in. So. We'd love to have you back on. i would love to sure. Uh, sure. conversate over a golf ball uh here and there. Uh okay. if you don't mind playing from the rough, because I'm okay. terrible.
3: Yeah. I'm there. <laughs> uh, I'm there too.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh but everyone else uh you know that's watching this show, please, you know, share, share um, this out with their with their friends, their family. And I would ask one thing of the audience too, if you see a police officer um or a law enforcement official uh, out there on the streets. Just tell them a quick, give them a quick nod, and tell them, "Hey, thank you for for the time that that they're doing for us, and uh, because we know it's a tough job." And just, I think we can do that all uh, in respect and, and and thanks out of you for for the service that you provide to the community. Yes, as sir. Well.
2: Thank you, guys.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it. All, all right. With, have a wonderful night, guys, and we'll see y'all again soon. That's right. All right. All right. Peace.